Man, what a, a, a fantastic four months it's been in uh, these, these uh, chapters 4 and 5 of Romans. Tonight we come to the conclusion of Romans chapter 5. It's only taken us one year and four months to get through five chapters of Romans. So uh, praise the Lord if he keeps me here maybe seven years we'll finish the entire book. And that's okay. So let's stand in the house of God. Turn to Romans chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 20. The word of God said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's, that's so good. Let's read it again. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. May God bless the reading of His Word. Be seated in the house of God. My message tonight is this. The magnification of grace. How many of you, when you were a little kid, you took a magnifying glass outside in the hot sun and you tried to light holes in a, a leaf or, or, or a piece of paper or Kleenex and you'd focus the sun's rays and you would condense it to a point where the sun's rays became condensed and super hot and the leaf would catch on fire? How many did that? Y'all were pyrotechnics like me. And some people maybe, you know, chased ants around, <laughs> got their behind a little warm, and they got going pretty fast. But see, that's not the, the proper use of magnification is to focus light inward. The proper use of a magnifying glass is to focus light outward to make something small appear bigger, something that we can't see appear to the point where we can see it. And uh, I think that's what we're going to see this evening. We're going to understand this evening the purpose of sin, the purpose of the law, and the purpose of grace. I want to start with the law. And what is the purpose of it? There's a great misunderstanding in the Christian community and Christianity in general of what is the purpose of the law of God. When I speak of the law of God, I'm talking about the Old Testament. And matter of fact... Not only have branches of Christianity been corrupted through the improper understanding of the law, but actually cults have been created that hinged on the point of the usage of the law. So therefore, the wrong usage of the law is actually the beginning point of a cult. Uh, and, and when I say a cult, what I mean is something distinctly different from the message of Christianity. And, and you, could, you could lump into this association uh, Mormonism, uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, uh, even some branches or denominations of Christianity would fall under that umbrella because they improperly use the law. So let's talk about the proper usage. Number one is that the law magnifies sin. The scripture says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. Now, why would God want the trespass to increase? Maybe you got a, 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 a speeding ticket or a parking ticket, and maybe your parking ticket is $50, but you come before the judge, and he tells you that's going to be $500. Or maybe you get a speeding ticket for five over, and you come before the judge, and he tells you it's going to be 25 over. Why would he want you to do that? Now, if you're rolling down uh, uh, 485 and you're doing 5 over the speed limit, man, that's not a big deal. But what if you're driving through a school zone for blind children and the speed limit is 10 miles an hour? 
because these children aren't aware and can't see like other children. The speed limit's 10 miles an hour, and you're rolling through there at 15 where you're doing 1.5 times the legal limit of what you're supposed to do. And now the trespass has increased based upon the situation. You see? It looks like the same trespass, but based on the magnitude of the event, the trespass has increased. That's the purpose of the law. You see, the trespasses were already there. They were already in existence. Sin was already in the world, but, but the law put a spotlight on it. When I was in a, a, a high school, uh, uh, in, in the plays, uh, uh, in college, in uh, the choir... Man, they'd have this big auditorium, and, and it'd be blacked out auditorium with these spotlights, and you couldn't see anything but the spotlight shining right in your eyes. Couldn't see no people out there. The purpose of that spotlight was to focus on something, to focus on the person who had the solo, to focus on the person who had the part. The law focused on sin. Three-quarters of our Bible, the Old Testament, focuses on sin. There is three quarters in the Old Testament, one quarter in the New Testament. Why does three quarters of it focus on the law and on sin? Because once you see the magnitude of sin, you'll understand your need for grace. That's why it's not the other way around. It's not three quarters grace, one quarter law. No, it's three quarters law because once you see the law, you're going to understand grace. But here's the problem. Some people get stuck in the law and they think because it's longer, I need to spend my, my energy in the law. And that's not where it is. You know, the treadmill might be bigger than the dumbbell, but if you don't want to build a bicep, you're not going to stay on the treadmill longer. That's not the purpose. Just because it's bigger doesn't mean it's applicable to what we're trying to do. There are over 600 laws in the Old Testament and some people are still under the impression that you were supposed to keep them all. Let me tell you, my friend, Adam couldn't keep one law. Why do we think that we're going to keep them all? You ever thought about that? <laughs> Adam couldn't keep one. Why did God give 600 in the Old Testament? He wanted to make sure every single person in Israel and whoever read the Bible realized we can't keep perfection. We cannot keep holiness. We cannot keep on ourselves a right standing with God. It is impossible for us to do that. The law does not show us our path towards holiness, but rather the presence of our holes. I used to have this t-shirt, Hard Rock. Cafe, Myrtle Beach, my favorite t-shirt ever. Man, I wore it like every other day to high school, and it had holes all in it. And Tyler hated this shirt. I loved it. It's like a manly shirt. You know, your deltoids hanging out and everything. I loved it. But she hated it, and it had these big holes. So one day, she hugged me, and she put her finger in one of these holes. And she just... She said, oh, I'm sorry. And the shirt was already holy. You see what I'm saying? And by that, the presence of holes, the presence of fault, the presence of lack. And what she did was she magnified its faults. She magnified its faultiness. Don't matter if it's one hole or a big hole. It's imperfect. It is imperfect. 
Matter of fact, God gave really uh, ten important laws to Moses. And just those ten alone are sufficient to show you that you're not holy and that you have no capacity for holiness. We don't even need all 600. Matter of fact, we can use all ten. We can use just ten to show that we're separated from God. God said, you shall have no other gods before me. What do we worship other than God? The self, pleasure, satisfaction, performance, success, society, relationships, friends, jobs. All these things we elevate above God. We can take one and show that we're not perfect. You see, your Bible can either sit with the law as the pinnacle. you got three quarters on top. Your Bible can either sit with the law as the pinnacle or... It can sit with the law as the foundation. Same book, different concept. You see, in this way, like we most of us read it, the law is on top. And so we think, okay, the law is where we spend our time and then grace is an add-on. But see, if you read the Bible in the original Hebrew, you would know that Hebrew goes from left to right. So if you had the Greek on top, by nature the Hebrew would be on the bottom. You see, the Old Testament law supports grace. It never dominates it. In reality, it's supposed to sit under grace and elevate grace. It's not so, grace is not supposed to be covered up by the law. should be the other way around. But we read it backwards. You see, some people read their Bible the wrong way. They, start, they become a Christian and they start reading about Jesus and they start reading about grace and favor and righteousness and then they get all spiritual and what they do is they start getting into uh, books like Leviticus and Deuteronomy when they get really spiritual and they think they're like educated now because now I'm getting to the really hard stuff where most Christians don't spend their time. And then they see the law and they're like, whoa, where did all this come from? Where did all this come from? Maybe this is the really spiritual stuff. So then they spend their Christianity into really spiritual stuff, they think, trying to keep the law. And they've done it backwards. If they would have read the law in the first place, they would have said, Oh my God, I'm separated from God and my sinfulness. Please show me about grace. And they'll see the proper understanding. You see, God does not give us the Ten Commandments to show us how to live right. Let me say that again because some of you need to catch it. God did not give us the Ten Commandments to show us how to live right. If that was true, we wouldn't need Jesus. If we could live right based on the Ten Commandments, Jesus would not have had to come. So what was the purpose? The purpose wasn't to show us how to live right. It was to show us we can't. We can't live right on our own. We can't live right without grace. We can't live right without the Holy Spirit. We can't live right without the gospel. Let me tell you, you can go around your whole life living by the Ten Commandments. And you can say, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That doesn't mean you're living the gospel. As Pastor Enoch said, a good Christian lives a good life. It's not just about being good. It's about engaging our culture with the gospel. Because we can sit at home all day and be good and not swear, not cuss, not go see movies. And people can go to hell all day long while we're worried about being good. But that's not what Christ has called us to be. He did not simply call us to a good life. He called us to a righteous life. And a righteous life says that Jesus in John 15, greater love has no man than this, that he laid on his life for his friend. 
The law didn't call me to do that. Grace did. It was grace that called me to do that. You see, some people think they can live right with the Ten Commandments. This is the root of Arminian theology and also the root of Catholic theology. That we have a capacity for right living based on our own. And Jesus enables us to live according to the law. Let me tell you, the point of Jesus is not so you can now live the Ten Commandments. That's not why, why Jesus came. Didn't, Jesus didn't just come so you can now be clean. Jesus didn't just come so now you could go around doing good things all your life. He came to fulfill the law and fulfill the prophets. And whereas the law would keep you sanitized, grace can make you maximize for the gospel. Y'all didn't even know where that came from. I, I'm not sure if I understand it myself. Let me break it down. You see, <laughs> the law will make sure we're clean. Let me tell you, a doctor can clean with soap for three hours in the operating room and never heal somebody. A teacher can spend four hours a day studying in the books, but if the gospel's not preached, no one has been uh, 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 engaged with the gospel. It's not just about good living. It's about what Christ has called us to. My friend, Jesus didn't come so you could simply live according to the law. If this was the case, then Paul would have advocated that all Christian men be circumcised, as the law said. But instead, he advocated the opposite. He said, listen, if you keep circumcision, you're going to have to keep all the rest of the law too. Because they were saying, well, the law says we should be circumcised, so we should be. But he says, listen, if you, keep, if you think the law is going to make you right with God, you're going to have to keep all of it. The law doesn't make you right with God. It's Christ who makes us right with God. Grace makes us right with God. Romans 3.28 says, We maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. You see, we come in in Christianity, we think, Okay, Jesus enables me now to do the law. Jesus enables me now to live what they were trying to live in the Old Testament. That's not it. It's not it. Israel was not trying to be Jesus. Israel was not trying to... Let me tell you something. And the Lord gave this to me the other day. I've been meditating on it. The prayer of Jabez is a limited prayer in the New Testament. He prayed, God enlarge my territory. My goodness, Jesus said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every nation. Do you need a bigger territory than that? He prayed, God bless me indeed, my friend. We've already been blessed through the cross of Calvary. That's already taken care of. The, the prayer of Jabez is a 1,000-year-old prayer that has no application to me and you. You see where I'm going? The reason he prayed the prayer of Jabez is because Jesus hadn't come yet. If we'd focus on what the gospel has already done, we wouldn't need the Jabez. This little old guy's got a prayer for like three minutes and people wigged out, preached sermon series, promoted books. Some guy made a million dollars because of a little three-sentence prayer in the Old Testament when Apostle Paul spent 16 chapters talking about the gospel. And if they would have focused on that, they wouldn't have to pray enlarge my territory. My territory's already large. Jerusalem, Judea, Sumeria. I mean, I got enough responsibility as it is. I'm not trying to tell God to enlarge my territory. I ain't been to Nigeria yet, China, Africa. There's a lot of countries that need to hear the gospel. Man, and all these Jabez praying Christians, they better be in Ethiopia right now sharing the good news of Jesus Christ or God didn't answer their Jabez prayer. You see? They wanted to pray their Jabez prayer so they can roll around in the GMC Yukon with 20s. God enlarge my territory. Give me some rims, sound system, bigger fence in my yard. 
Let me tell you, the purpose of Israel was to display God's prosperity through materialism. Solomon lived in a big, big, great golden palace. Man had everything he wanted, had 700 concubines. Jesus didn't cost to be Solomon. Jesus was better than Solomon. And the whole thing about the law is we think this is the prosperity gospel wrapped up in the law. If we do good, we get good. That is anti-gospel, folks. That is anti-Christianity. The gospel never says if you do good, you get good. The gospel says you all do bad, you deserve bad, but God gives you good. That's grace. Somebody help me today. Abraham, who is our father of the faith, according to the righteousness that comes by faith, was declared righteous before the law ever came into existence. This is why Paul points to Abraham instead of Moses, who brought the law. If the law was what we were attained to as Christians, then Paul should be pointing to Moses, but he points to Abraham. Abraham never had the law, but he still followed God through faith. You know why? Because Jesus frees us from the law, because in love there is no law. There is no law in love. Some of you need to catch this. How many of you, your wife goes home and writes you a list of how much you should spend time with them every day? <laughs> you need to spend 30 minutes with me in the morning, 30 minutes with me in the evening. Now it's not love, now it's duty. <laughs> now it's a job. Man. You see, in love, there doesn't have to be a law. In love, there's just love. And all these law-preaching preachers that preach this gospel, that, um, excuse me, anti-gospel of law-based salvation are putting people back into the Old Testament that Jesus delivered them out of. They're putting them back into Egypt to be slaves. Somebody asked me, what's the, you know, what's the, the, the heart of Easter connected to the Old Testament? I said, the reason Jesus died at Passover, because it's a parallel, was when Moses delivered the people from Egypt out of slavery, and Jesus is the Lamb of God who delivers us from spiritual bondage. That comes under the law. Spiritual bondage comes under the law. And now what we've got, we've got a bunch of law-preaching Moseses that are trying to put people back in Egypt under bondage. Let me tell you, it's better to be thirsty in grace than it is to be chained up in Egypt. You should have wrote that down. But Paul does not dismiss that the law does not have value. Let me tell you, the law has value, folks. I'm not dismissing the law. I'm putting the law in its proper perspective. The law has value. And he says, he says in verse 13, that because of the law, sin is imputed. Meaning that the purpose of the law is so we understand sin. The purpose of the law is meaning that sin is realized, understood, applied, and seen. Without the law, we would not see the magnitude of sin. So the law has a great purpose. The law must be preached to show humanity's sinfulness. The law is necessary in evangelism because it makes the sinner realize the seriousness and size of their sin. The law is the doctor that shows us the magnitude of our disease. You still with me today? Man, I'm thirsty. The law magnifies sin. Secondly, sin magnifies grace. Verse 20, latter part says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Let me tell you, some, some people have accused me of being a big grace preacher. They said, all you do is talk about grace. Well, if you want to tell me that I'm a big grace preacher, then in order for that to be true, then I must also be a big sin preacher. Because there can't be no big grace unless sin is big too. You can't preach a grace-based gospel unless you preach a sin-based depravity. 
And when depravity is magnified, grace is magnified all the more. I must not simply preach that sin is mistakes or sin is bad behavior. I was listening to an interview by Joel Osteen. And he said that God forgives our mistakes. Man, that's really good news because I forgot to put gas in my truck and it's on empty and I'm glad God's going to forgive me. My wife told me to get cookies from the store, but I came home with Fig Newtons. And that's a mistake. I'm glad God's going to forgive me. Let me tell you a true story. We'd been married for about a year and I bought Tyler an ice cream cake for her birthday. Man, I was excited. I was going to surprise her with this ice cream cake. I'd never got one before, so, so she went to work, and I went into the store early before I had to go to work, and, and I got an ice cream cake, and I came home and put it in the refrigerator. About nine hours later, I came home. The ice cream cake was all over the second shelf. <laughs> that was a mistake. I'm glad God will forgive me. You see? God forgives my mistakes. I was worried that was going to keep me out of heaven. How many of you, you type a name in your phone, and then you put it up to your ear, you haven't hit sent yet? How many do that? I'll pull up a name on my phone and then put it up to my ear, man, 20 seconds. This thing is not ringing. I ain't even pushed send. That's a mistake. I'm glad God will forgive me. No, Joel, the word is sin. Say it with me. Sin. God forgives us of our sin. Sin is disobedience to the will of God. It's not a mistake. A mistake is when I back into the garage door on accident. That's a mistake. It doesn't keep me out of heaven. What keeps me out of heaven is sin. Transgression of the holy law of God. Sin is the willful objection to God's standard. Sin is not a mistake. It is the willful transgression of God's holy law. And against the backdrop of God's holiness, it is infinitely ugly to God. Sin is infinitely ugly. It can't be removed by uh, us being polished It can't be removed by us being trained or with behavior modification. There's this new phrase in evangelicalism that's called life change. Jesus has come to bring us life change. Man, Dr. Phil gives people life change. You can win the lottery and have life change. You can start going to the gym and have life change. You can go to Weight Watchers and have life change. Folks, we're not at a Weight Watchers meeting. We're not at the gym or Dr. Phil. God's not calling us to change his life. He's calling us to crucify it so he can create a new creature. God doesn't change me. He destroys me and then rebuilds me in his image. Christ is not here to make me better. He's here to make me small so that he is magnified. God is so holy he cannot exist with sin. And sin is so ugly that sin cannot exist in His presence. Sin is utterly in the core of our being. We are sinful. We are depraved. It cannot be removed by behavior modification. Jesus is not our example. He is not uh, simply the, the, the prophet who shows us now what to do. No, He is God in flesh who reconciled the world to Himself and calls us to crucify the sinful nature with Him so that He can live, not us. This is why the preaching of small sin results in a small grace and that results in a powerless Christianity. 
Why are so many Christians walking around without power in the world? Why are they so closed mouthed about their faith? Why have we invited so few people to Easter services? Because when we think it just took a little power to make me clean, then I'll only have a little power to preach the gospel. When Jesus is just a little powerful to make me new, then I'm only a little powerful to live for Christ. But when we see the magnitude of sin, we see the power of grace and the transformational activity that's happened now in my life. And man, that gives me confidence in the gospel. Man, that gives me confidence in the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you what, you're never going to have a day of sharing your faith with a lost person where your knees are not going to tremble. It should be the most nervous wrecking activity we ever engage in in our life and it should drive us to prayer. All spiritual activities should drive us to prayer. It is not comfortable. It is always awkward. And it will be difficult. But when we rely on the Holy Spirit, He is faithful. See, I thank God He let me see the depth of my sin, the depth of my separation. Because I was an enemy of God in my mind, according to the Scriptures. I was utterly helpless without God's intervention in my life. But praise be to God that it was a big grace that changed my heart. It was a big cross that paid for my sin and a big gospel that breathed life into this dead creature and when I see the full extent of my sin then I see the full extent of his grace and now I'm empowered with the full extent of the gospel big sin results in big grace that means big calling on our life God doesn't call small creatures He calls beings that he purchased for himself to be an eternal bride. See, there's a balance there. Because depravity says we're worthless, but grace says we're worth something. Because you determine the value by the price that's paid for an object. If you paid $25,000 for a car, you determine the value because of the price it's paid. What is the price paid for you? The spotless blood of Christ. How valuable are you? Infinitely valuable. That Christ purchased us with his blood. The law magnifies sin. Sin magnifies grace. And praise God, grace magnifies justification. Verse 21 says that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, once I see the magnitude of grace that it took for me to be saved, once I see the preciousness of His blood that paid for my sin, then I see that the righteousness which comes through faith is only by grace. It can't come through works. Once I realize the proper understanding of the law is to show me my separation from God and show me my depravity, and I understand that three quarters of the Bible says I can't get right with God, then I understand that justification is only by grace and not by my works. Let me tell you the reason the Mormon thinks that they can get right with God. Because they don't see the extent of their sinfulness. They think that they can overcome sin by their works. The Jehovah's Witness thinks they can overcome sin by their works. Anybody that's got their focus in the law thinks they can overcome sin by their works. They have not seen the magnitude of depravity. And therefore they don't understand the magnitude of grace. See, see, uh, these people with their little pamphlets will come to your door and they'll say, Yes, we're Christians. Yes, we're Christians. We believe Christ died. But they don't believe he died for all sin. Because unless you prove that you're righteous, you won't make it. 
Unless you live righteous, you won't make it. My friend Grace says, we never live righteous to begin with. I was never right to begin with. He makes me right with God. Not through works, not through law, not through flesh, but through grace alone. Sola gratia, through grace alone. This was the pinnacle of the Protestant Reformation. This is why we're Baptists today, because of Martin Luther. Sola gratia, grace alone saves us. Not works, it's not works-based righteousness. If sin can only be removed through grace, then being made right can only come through faith. Let me say that again. If sin can only be removed through grace, then being made righteous can only come through faith. This is why it says in verse 21, grace reigns through righteousness. Actually, if you're reading in the New Living Translation, it says, now God's wonderful grace rules, giving us a right standing with God. You see how that explains that verse? Giving us a right standing with God. That means because grace reigns supreme, we are made right with God through grace. I like that. I like that. Righteousness means made right with God. Grace reigns supreme, so we're made right with God through grace. Brother Charlie, we're made right with God because of grace. And we can stand on that today. I had a brother uh, talk with me last week. I met him at Lowe's. And he said, man, God's just been showing me all these sins that I committed in my life. And he says, I'm wondering if I'm going to be held accountable for that. I said, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I do. I said, well, then no, you won't. Because those are gone, my friend. You are right with God. He says, man, I'm living in fear. I'm living in guilt, living in condemnation. I said, that's not a result of the Holy Spirit. It's a result of the enemy who wants to push you down. The Holy Spirit and grace lifts you up. The enemy wants to tell you a sinner. The, the Holy Spirit says, listen, we're right with God through faith. We're right with God through grace. Stop listening to the enemy and listen to the Spirit. Listen to the Scripture. At least three times this past week, someone asked me a form of the question, will a Christian be held accountable for sin once they get to heaven? They think that if God does not punish men, punish Christians for their sin, then God would not be, be just. My Christian sin, let me, my Christian friend, let me know. Let, good gracious. Hold on. I'm a little warm. It's good to be warm in God's house. God will fully hold sin accountable, and he did it on Calvary. God will fully punish sin, and he did it on the cross. You see, every sin you've ever committed was punished in the body of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Therefore, there is no more wrath reserved for you. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1. There is no more judgment. There's only grace and mercy. That's why there's no fear in love. Let me tell you, I'm fired up about Sunday's message. I wrote it two weeks ago. I was so excited about Easter. I wrote my Easter message two weeks ago. Bring some lost people because they're going to hear the gospel. And you probably need to hear it too so you can have power in your life and not be humbo jumbo all the time. I asked my friend, I said, when you went on your honeymoon, did you make your wife sit in the corner for time out for all the things she did wrong when you were dating? All right, honey, listen, we've been dating for six years. And I've kept a list of all the things you did wrong. No, we had a good wedding today, but you're going to sit in time out for 45 minutes. <laughs> That's pretty funny. 
How much more ridiculous does it sound that the king of kings who died on the cross to purchase a bride for himself, who shed his precious blood, gave his life so that we could live, and to think that he's going to judge Christians for the wrong they have done? My friend, that wrong is gone. That sin is gone. That sin is paid for. That's why the baptistry is drained after sin is taken off the new creature, because it's washed away. It's in the plums and pipes of mercy, and it's gone down to the sea of forgetfulness, my friend. I'm not teaching baptismal regeneration, but I hope you follow the symbolism. Somebody asked me today the difference in uh, baptism by immersion and sprinkling. I said, let's say you've been working in the yard all day. You've got dust all over you, grass all over you. Do you want to sprinkle? Or do you want it all over? Grace gets all over. It gets everywhere. It gets in the unseen parts. Not just what people see. The Greek word in the Bible is bautizo, immersion. Immersion. See, the blood of Christ did not perfectly atone for your sin. If it did not atone for your sin, then that makes an incomplete atonement of the cross. If there is still judgment reserved for the Christian, then that makes an incomplete atonement on Calvary. And therefore, you still have to live your life under the curse of the law. If that is true, what good is Christ? What good is the cross? What good is Easter? There are cults and religions and denominations who's going to teach you that Christ died for some of your sin, but you better live right or you're going to have to pay. You better live right or you're in danger of hellfire. My friend, if we're still living to try to get right, we haven't seen that God has made us right. We haven't even seen Christianity. But once you realize you are right, let me tell you, you will be empowered to live the gospel. You will be empowered to be with the Holy Spirit and you will have victory. Victory comes because we are right with God, not because we can get right with God. The cross is good. Easter is good, as Ephesians 2.8 says. It is by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works. Not by works, so that no one can boast. Not by works, not by law, not by flesh, not by circumcision, not by your own goodness, not by your ability to perform, not by your ability to be good. And most of you ain't even that good. I'm only good when I sleep. Even then I have bad dreams. The law did not come so we could obey, but it came so that it could drive us to our knees in utter desperation before a righteous judge and plea to God to save us through the cross. That's the purpose of the law. The law drives us down. In sinfulness, grace picks us up. Whenever you're beat down, don't let the devil show you what you've not done. Let God show you what he has done. Wash away. Christ has forgiven us of our sin. Have we? That's why he's given us the mind of Christ. He's given us the mind of Christ because the mind of Christ gets past sin. Gets past failure. It gets past the ice cream cake in the refrigerator. Aren't you glad that God forgives us of all sin? If you're glad of that, would you stand in his house?
Father, we're so thankful for Jesus today who liberates us from the Pharaoh's hand of bondage that comes under the law, that comes under the curse, that comes under sin. And God, as we approach this season of Passover and Easter, where we meditate on you as you stood before your disciples and said, this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant, which you drink in remembrance of me. God, I pray that that liberation, that message of the gospel would free us from bondage to our sinfulness and bondage under the law. And God, that once we're free from under the law, we can now live under love and serve you and love you faithfully. Through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we pray for all those people we're inviting to the Easter services. God, our neighbors, our doctors, our waitresses, our co-workers, all those people who need to hear the eternal spirit renewing power of the gospel. That your Holy Spirit will work upon their hearts, do a mighty work in their life. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.